0: His writing gives a crystal clear picture of his ideas, of his vision for America, and I think especially of his deep, sincere affection for the people of this country and his faith in their strength and character. If you listen to the conclusion of this one broadcast, this piece he called Looking Out a Window, you'll hear him saying things that might sound corny or overblown coming from someone else. But when he says these words, you can hear that he means them. He wrote them, he spoke them, and he truly meant every word.
1: By now, thinking of their homecoming, I'm counting how many more hotel room windows I'll be looking out of before I'm in the rush hour traffic heading home. And yes, I'm feeling a little envious of the people in those cars down below. It seems I've said a thousand goodbyes, each one harder than the one before. Someone very wise once wrote that if we were all told one day that the end was coming, that we were living our last day, every road, every street, and all the telephone lines would be jammed with people trying to reach someone to whom we wanted simply to say, I love you. But why wait for such a final day and take the chance of not getting there in time? Speaking of time, I'll have to stop now. Hello, operator. I'd like to make a long-distance call. This is Ronald Reagan. Thanks for listening. Ronald
0: Reagan in his own voice. This program features a selection of radio commentaries by Ronald Reagan. They're drawn from a series initially called Viewpoint that aired from 1975 to 1979, broadcast on more than 300 stations, reaching millions of listeners every week. The commentaries are presented here as a chronology, beginning in January of 1975 and concluding with Reagan's farewell broadcast in November of 1979 as he launched his formal presidential campaign. Along the way, we'll keep abreast of world events during these years to provide a context for Reagan's remarks, and we'll hear from some of the people who lived and worked with Ronald Reagan his wife, Nancy, George P. Schultz, who advised him during his campaign and became his Secretary of State, Edwin Meese, Reagan's Counsel and Attorney General, Michael Deaver, former Deputy Chief of Staff for President Reagan, Judge William P. Clark and Richard V. Allen, both of whom served as National Security Advisor to President Reagan, Peter Hannaford, who worked closely with Reagan on the radio commentaries, and Harry O'Connor, the man who initiated and produced Reagan's radio broadcasts. We'll also hear commentary by the three scholars who assembled this remarkable collection Kyron Skinner, Assistant Professor of History and Political Science at Carnegie Mellon University and a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Annalise Anderson, a Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Associate Director of Management and Budget under President Reagan. And Martin Anderson, Jan and Keith Hurlbut Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Chief Domestic and Economic Policy Advisor under President Reagan. We begin with these observations from former Secretary of State George Shultz.
2: I've logged many hours with Ronald Reagan, advising him during the 1980 presidential campaign, then serving as a Secretary of State for nearly seven years. In my many personal meetings with him, and hearing him in consultation with heads of government or with other members of our own cabinet and Congress, I was always struck by his ability to work an issue in his mind and to find its essence, and by the depth of his conviction. Thinking back on all the time we spent together, I remember his intense interest and fondness for the spoken word, for caring very deeply about how to convey his thoughts and ideas to people, not only to the American people, but to people living all over the world. Listening to the essays in this program, I thought about all the times I had been with him when he spoke without notes or briefings, forcefully and clearly spelling out what would be the policy positions of the United States. Somehow, he always seemed to know what to say. But to many people, President Reagan was a mystery. How did he know what to say? Who was handing him notes and whispering in his ear? Who was writing his speeches? Even some of his closest aides were puzzled. The answer to that mystery may lie in these essays, which were written well before he became president. Apparently, even then, he knew quite a bit. I remember when I accompanied the president to the Geneva Summit meeting in 1985, where he and Mikhail Gorbachev, whom he would meet there for the first time, were scheduled to talk about the full range of issues confronting the United States and the Soviet Union. On the second morning, the subject was strategic nuclear arms. Donald Reagan, Bud McFarlane, Paul Nitze, Roz Ridgway, and Arthur Hartman joined the President and me on our side of the table, facing our Soviet counterparts. Mikhail Gorbachev suddenly began to harangue us about our strategic defense initiative, our plans for missile defense. President Reagan exploded. The two leaders went back and forth, interrupting each other and expressing their views with vehemence. Then Ronald Reagan got the floor. He spoke passionately about how much better the world would be if we were able to defend ourselves against nuclear warheads on ballistic missiles. He was intense as he expressed his abhorrence at having to rely on the ability to wipe each other out as the only means of keeping the peace. We must do better and we can, Reagan declared. The depth of President Reagan's belief in missile defense was vividly apparent. Ronald Reagan was talking from the inside out. Translation was simultaneous. Gorbachev could connect what Reagan was saying with his facial expressions and body language. When the president finished, there was total silence. After what seemed an interminable time, Gorbachev said, Mr. President, I don't agree with you, but I can see that you really mean what you say. Ronald Reagan had made an immense impression on Mikhail Gorbachev, who must have realized that he could not talk, con, bully, or in any other way manipulate Ronald Reagan into dropping his missile defense research program. Ronald Reagan had personally nailed into place an essential plank in our negotiating platform. On another occasion, I accompanied Reagan to a meeting of NATO heads at a particularly tense time. As always at such meetings, each leader was allotted a limited amount of time to speak. Questions were raised about the importance of NATO and the U.S. commitment to its success. Sitting beside Ronald Reagan, I could see him become increasingly restive and agitated. He had some prepared notes in his hand, but when his turn came to speak, he ignored the notes and virtually exploded into the meeting. He talked intensely and extemporaneously about the importance of NATO and its role and his complete commitment to its mission. Nobody had written that talk for him, and he had not written it himself beforehand. He just knew what he wanted to say and it showed how crisply and clearly he had thought through this important matter of our foreign and defense policy. I could tell dozens of stories about specific times when Ronald Reagan displayed detailed knowledge about policy issues, and when he took decisive action on that knowledge, without the benefit of somebody whispering in his ear or sliding a note in his hand. But so ingrained is the belief that he was an amiable man, not too bright, the willing captive of his aides, that it would probably not make much difference. And that is the reason why this program is so important. It goes a long way toward answering some very significant questions. How could a man of supposedly limited knowledge and limited intelligence accomplish so much? How did he get elected and re-elected to governor of our largest state? How did he get elected and re-elected president of the United States? How did he preside over a time of unprecedented prosperity, the winning of the Cold War, and the demise of communism worldwide. How? Well, maybe he was a lot smarter than most people thought. These essays cover an extraordinary range of foreign policy, defense, and domestic policy issues, reflecting Reagan's personal views. They were written to be listened to, to be broadcast once into the air, and then to disappear. But luckily, they didn't disappear, and now they force us to reflect on the light they shed and the mind and the capability of the man, Ronald
0: Reagan. As the year 1975 begins, the aftermath of Watergate still dominates the headlines. John Mitchell, H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, and Robert Mardian are found guilty in the cover-up that had led to Richard Nixon's resignation from the presidency five months earlier. President Gerald Ford has named a special commission to investigate charges of domestic spying by the CIA. President Ford is about to present his budget for fiscal 1976, which includes a record peacetime deficit of $51.9 billion. Unemployment is at 8.2%, the highest since 1953, and rising. And as the United States reels from the wounds of Vietnam, the Soviet sphere of influence appears to be spreading throughout Asia and Africa. In many of his radio commentaries, Ronald Reagan focuses on the importance of information and disinformation in the ideological battlefields of the Cold War. This one, recorded in mid-February of 1975, is entitled A Cuba Documentary.
1: When a documentary deals with fiction rather than fact, it really isn't a documentary, is it? I'll be right back. The very word documentary makes you think of research and of factual material painstakingly collected. And those who read or see a documentary are entitled to believe they've been given an objective, thoroughly documented treatise on whatever the subject might be. Not too long ago on this program, I discussed Cuba and gave some requirements I thought should be met before Uncle Sam welcomed that unhappy island back into the family of American nations. Now, that was an editorial an expression of opinion with which you could agree or disagree. Since then, one of our TV networks has presented, with a certain amount of fanfare, a, quote, documentary, unquote, and question mark. It was called Cuba, the People. Was it really a documentary, or was it an editorial? Basically, the message was that soon Cuba will no longer be an underdeveloped country thanks to the success of socialism. The question is, how and when did Cuba become an underdeveloped country? Prior to Castro, Cuba led all its Latin neighbors in standard of living, literacy, and any number of other desirable indicators. For example, Cuba had more doctors in proportion to population, more automobiles, higher per capita income, more TV broadcasting and ownership of TV sets, more newspaper circulation, and even greater attendance at movies. In moviegoing, they were second only to us, which means they were second in the world. The so-called documentary was of Cuba today. It showed farmers plowing with oxen. Now, I don't know how widespread that is, but mechanized farming had reached a pretty high level back in Cuba, B.C., before Castro. Let me read some lines from what has to be considered a real documentary. A report issued in May 1962 by the Economic Research Service of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The report was entitled, Agriculture and Food Situation in Cuba. Quote, In 1958, Cuba was self-supporting in many foodstuffs, such as meat, poultry, fish, eggs, milk, butter, tubers, vegetables, coffee, and fruits, of which there was a great variety and abundance. In the season, oranges were sold in pushcarts in Havana, peeled, iced, and ready to eat, at three, four, or five for a nickel. Under communism, food ration cards were introduced before the third year of the revolution expired. Oranges have become so scarce that they can only be purchased in pharmacies with a doctor's prescription." I don't know whether the makers of the documentary intended to sell us socialism or whether they were just set up by their Cuban hosts, but a truly objective documentary would have made it plain that the Cuba of today is not anywhere near as well-off or economically sound as it was before Castro imposed communism on the people. Indeed, there's every reason to believe Cuba would be in real trouble without the sizable subsidy it gets from the Soviet Union. These days, when we're flooded with so many words on every subject... We need to check out some of those words before we accept them as gospel, including the use of the word documentary. And that goes for my words, too. Make sure you've heard all the facts before you make up your mind. This is Ronald Reagan. Thanks for listening.
3: That was one of the hundreds of topics Ronald Reagan covered in his radio broadcasts. His briefcase was always filled with things to read and write about, He'd do this on airplanes, between speaking engagements, or in the station wagon on the way to and from his ranch. He always seemed to have one of those yellow ruled pads in his lap to be filled in with his writing.
0: Peter Hannaford was Director of Public Affairs for Ronald Reagan when he was Governor of California. In 1974, during Reagan's final year in office, he and Michael Deaver, another senior assistant, put together a plan for Reagan's post-gubernatorial activities.
3: Part of my job was to chase down and evaluate opportunities that were coming his way, things he might do once he left office. I remember going into his office in the Capitol in Sacramento one Monday morning. he just arrived from Los Angeles after spending a weekend at home. He said to me, Ephraim Zimblis called over the weekend, said he's having a wonderful time uh, doing a radio program, three to five minutes a day on famous figures in history. The producer of the program, a fellow named Harry O'Connor, thinks there's a real place on radio for a daily conservative commentary, and he wants me to do it after I leave office. Check it out.